So the talk I wanted to present today is really an introduction to what is MLOps. Um, obviously, if you came to this meetup, you probably have some idea and you probably have an interest in it. Um, but, but I wanted to sort of start uh, start this uh, start these sessions with with an introduction. Um, and I also wanted to to put a little spin on it, which is how will MLOps properly done actually help me work from home? Because it's it's now becoming the new normal that especially for um, well, it's becoming the new normal that everybody in the world is working from home, which is kind of crazy, kind of interesting. Um, and uh, in particular, if you're a data scientist or someone managing data scientists, then, um, then working from home and working remotely and doing asynchronous uh, collaboration can be particularly challenging because of some of the complexities. So uh, I'll, I'll also talk about that. Um, and then I'm going to do a live demo. So please, could everyone pray to the demo gods? Um, I'm going to attempt a live demo uh, of some of our collaboration tooling. Um, and then hopefully we, we have a good chunk of time afterwards for, for Q&A. Um, so to jump straight in then, what is MLOps? Um, MLOps is the intersection of these three disciplines, uh, DevOps, software engineering, and machine learning. And so I'm going to talk for a, a short time about each of those disciplines in turn and and then we'll I'm going to talk about how uh, the intersection of them is kind of interesting and complicated. Um, so if we look at how software engineering has been done, um, I'm not going to spend too long on this, but the, the basic point here is that software engineering has changed a lot um, in uh, in the time that it's been even a discipline. Um, and we used to all log into big mainframes. Um, we used to email patch files around to each other. And the way that, um, that collaboration happened uh, for software engineers used to very much be around sort of manually integrating changes to source code. This was prior to version control, prior to things like subversion. Um, and for the longest time, the Linux kernel, for example, was developed by people just emailing patch files around and maintaining their own local copy of the source tree. And that was painful for obvious reasons. Um, and it took a long time to integrate things. And then Subversion came along and uh, we, we got to the point where we had version control and you could check in and check out things. And that was a great improvement. And then the additional sort of improvement beyond that is this notion of distributed version control, um, where uh, you can sort of do social coding on GitHub. Um, and, uh, and, and that's kind of, in my mind, uh, from a collaboration perspective where, where we've got to from a software engineering perspective. And so the next piece is, is, is DevOps. And so if software engineering is how we create software, then DevOps is how we deploy it and operate it. Um, and DevOps has also undergone some significant changes in, in the last few uh, decades and years. Um, I uh, am personally responsible for being one of the people who used to edit code live on the server. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. Um, but, uh, but that used to be the way that, that a lot of things were done. Um, uh, people also used to build binaries and email them around. Um, so people used to, for example, uh, send um, WAR files, email a WAR file to a, to a sysadmin and get them to deploy the latest version of the software on the server. Um, and obviously that had problems. Uh, and then this thing happened that was called DevOps. And DevOps is about breaking down the silos for, between uh, dev teams and operators. And, um, 
And, and so it was kind of an, a change in the way that teams are organized. And it's also a change in the way that, uh, that software is deployed and managed. Um, so now the people who write the software are responsible for shipping uh, the software and operating it um, in, in most well-formed DevOps teams. And continuous integration is a thing. So software gets continuously automatically tested uh, whenever uh, changes are pushed to version control. There's also been a big move away from running your own hardware towards the public cloud. And more recently, there's been a big move towards using immutable infrastructure like Docker and Kubernetes, um, and even this notion of GitOps, which is that you should also store the configuration for how your software is operated in version control, um, as well as um, the, uh, the source code for it. And, and then source control becomes your source of truth for the software that, uh, or the infrastructure that you're operating, and that has some, some obvious benefits. And then finally, um, the third discipline that's intersecting here is machine learning. Um, and machine learning is basically how we use data and maths to train models to make predictions about the world. Um, and I won't go through the whole history of, uh, of machine learning here, um, but uh, just to say that sort of um, there was this thing that's called the AI winter, which is where um, uh, there was a lot of hype around AI kind of the first time around. I think it was in the 70s. People in the audience may well uh, correct me on that. Um, and um, uh, there was a lot of hype around AI and um, it turned out that the, both the algorithms but also the hardware wasn't, wasn't good enough. It's a little bit like the dot-com uh, bubble in a sense that um, the, the internet speeds back in 2000 weren't good enough and the hardware wasn't good enough to, the connectivity wasn't good enough to support um, all the hype that was going on about the, uh, about the web. Um, and uh, and this, this AI winter led to this sort of huge peak in hypiness around machine learning and AI that, that then uh, kind of collapsed when people realized that it wasn't actually going to be able to deliver on all the hype. And we've kind of gone around that cycle once already, and now we're in another hype cycle around AI and machine learning. And now this time around, it does seem like um, it is, uh, uh, it is set to um, seriously change uh, the world, really, and to change the way that, uh, uh, and it's, it's starting to get adopted um, very seriously inside lots of large enterprises, which is, which is interesting. And I also just wanted to um, uh, have a nod here to uh, the picture in this slide. Uh, comes from a local Bristol company called Graphcore. Um, and they make some very beautiful pictures uh, that are um, representations of uh, sort of visual representations of how neural networks actually work, uh, which, which are pretty cool. And so basically deep learning is now becoming, and machine learning and, machine learning and deep learning is becoming computationally feasible. And there's this uh, huge rush that all the enterprises around the world are in, they're kind of locked in an arms race to, um, to get value out of AI. And so we end up in this place where machine learning is effectively emerging from research and it's being productionized or it's like companies are attempting to productionize it. Um, and this means that ML is emerging from research and that these disciplines of software development, DevOps and machine learning need to converge so that people can build models and they can deploy them and they can have the same level of 
rigor and reliability um, that software has in DevOps. Um, and, and so this convergence of these things will be called and is already called MLOps. Um, and that's why uh, we've named our community after this new emergent term. I personally believe that AI and machine learning has the potential to reinvent the global economy. Um, and hopefully in a good way, because I think it has the, has the potential to eliminate a, a great deal of boredom that is currently suffered by humans uh, in, in doing very tedious jobs. It's kind of outside of the scope of this talk to talk about the political changes that are gonna be necessary to, um, to, to make that uh, non-disruptive. But anyway, um, so I think we can all agree that AI has the potential for, for good. And um, as a discipline, what we found is that it's extremely immature. So it's kind of like the Wild West out there. Um, and we've seen damaging levels of chaos and pain as companies go from uh, what we call playing with AI to um, actually trying to use AI to deliver business value, which is uh, often referred to as operationalizing AI. Um, and so some of the things that we've seen uh, that cause these uh, pain points um, things like models being blocked before they can even get to deployment. Um, so, uh, so we've spoken with, with many companies that are trying to do uh, AI in, in production. And one of the things that is a very common theme is that we just can't, we can develop the models on our laptops, um, but, we, but we just can't get them deployed into production. And of course that sucks because that, then the time to value is very, very high. If it takes a long time or if it's not even possible at all to deploy models, um, or even if it takes three or six months to deploy a model, then, then by the time you've got the model deployed, the data is already stale and, um, uh, and often AI projects in, in companies get branded as a failure just because they can't get them out the door. Another problem that we've seen um, is that uh, models um, aren't monitored. Um, that's actually item number six on, on this list. Uh, and so we had one company tell us that they deployed a model to production um, and then the model went wrong and they lost an unmeasurable amount of money, as in they actually couldn't figure out how much money they'd lost because the model had gone wrong because they weren't monitoring it. Um, and there are unique challenges around monitoring models that are different to monitoring regular software microservices that, that I'll talk about in a minute. Um, some other problems that we've seen are that people end up wasting a lot of time. Um, so if there are multiple data scientists or machine learning engineers collaborating on trying to uh, trying to work on a model together, then a lot of time is wasted just trying to set your development environments up so that they are um, similar uh, enough to that, that your work is that the work that someone does is compatible with your environment um, or spending a lot of time copying data sets around um, between different machines. This also uh, kind of ties into the third point here, which is a lot of inefficient collaboration. So we've heard of people um, uh, saying things like, oh, we just keep our data science team small and we keep them in the same room so, um, uh, so they can collaborate by talking. Um, uh, and obviously in the current climate, that is particularly challenging because you don't want to put people in the same room anymore. And, um, uh, and even using paper notebooks to keep track of the work that they're doing and the results that they're keeping track of. Um, and um, 
and that relates to the, the fourth point, which is manual tracking. Uh, we've seen an awful lot of companies that um, they put the uh, code, like the some reference to the version of the code and the data and the premises that they use when they're training a model, along with the whatever, like met metrics, like accuracy score for that model. They either put that in a wiki or on paper or on a, um, uh, or in a shared spreadsheet. We've seen an awful lot of shared spreadsheets uh, kicking around. And there's another problem um, with, those, with those spreadsheets is that there's a lack of reproducibility and provenance. And what this means is that you can't go back from um, a model that's running in production to, well, what data was it trained on? Um, and uh, where, um, uh, what parameters were used? Like who even created this model? Do they even still work at this company? <laughs> like um, being able to keep track of uh, the work that went into creating a model causes lots of uh, complexity um, when, um, uh, when, when you're trying to scale up the team uh, or when the number of models that you have increases. But the key point here is that if you can't deploy your models into production at all to begin with, then you're not gonna get to the later problems of a lack of reproducibility and provenance. Um, and so actually the most fundamental thing we need to solve in MLOps is making it easy to get models into production in the first place. Um, and so this is kind of uh, oddly familiar because we've been here before. And if you look at how software engineering was in the 90s, it was very siloed. Um, not everything was in version control. There was no continuous delivery. And it took a long time uh, to ship software when it was being manually integrated and when there were these long like uh, QA and uh, release cycles. And now software ships in, minute, in minutes, in sometimes in some cases seconds. Um, modern tech companies that are shipping software will often say when they onboard a new employee, well, on your first day, your job is to make a live change to the, to the product, a small one, but um, you push it through the continuous delivery pipeline and get it out. We make um, dozens of changes every hour in some cases um, to different microservices. But, but AI is kind of still stuck in this um, pre DevOps world of, uh, of collaboration. And a large part of that is because the tooling isn't up to scratch. Um, so we have this kind of manifesto. So this is what we care about and, and um, why we get out of bed in the morning is because we are, we're working on trying to solve this MLOps manifesto. Um, and the manifesto is in the form of four tests. So you can kind of apply these tests to your own MLOps pipelines and uh, you can sort of form an opinion about how mature you are against um, the, the, different, uh, the different requirements here. And so the first requirement is that your um, uh, model training and uh, deployment pipelines have to be reproducible. What that means, a good test for this is if I can come along uh, nine months later, um, if someone else can come along nine months later, uh, and retrain a model that was trained by somebody else who, uh, without even talking to them with, let's say, an old version of TensorFlow on an old data set um, with, uh, uh, on, um, on hardware that is sufficiently equivalent um, that they can retrain the model to within a few percentage points, then you've got a reproducible MLOps pipeline. And if nine months later you can't because you upgraded the version of TensorFlow on your development machines and the data's gone somewhere and you don't know where the data's gone, uh, the data's changed in your production database, then you've failed the reproducibility test. And if you fail the reproducibility test, then you're in trouble from a 
uh, governance and, um, and compliance perspective in some industries. The second test is, is your MLOps pipeline accountable? Um, and we talk about accountability from the same perspective that we hold humans accountable for their decision-making process. Um, and one of the ways in which you do that is you say, on what basis did you make your decision? And the on what basis question uh, with machine learning um, as a minimum requirement, uh, not even going into the whole area of explainability, but as a minimum requirement, you have to be able to say what version of the data was the model trained on. And so you need to be able to track um, the model back to the provenance of, uh, of where that model came from, what data it was trained on, by whom, and, uh, and so on. The next point, and it's especially pertinent at the moment, is this collaboration uh, requirement. So it has to be possible to do asynchronous collaboration. And this is something that Software DevOps has got sorted, um, and MLOps doesn't yet, mostly. And this means that um, uh, I need to be able to, uh, uh, if, uh, for example, if, uh, if my colleague Chris is working on a model, um, I need to be able to make a fork of that model um, and I need to be able to make changes to it without treading on Chris's toes. So we both need to be able to uh, collaborate asynchronously and, uh, and get useful work done. Um, now, this has kind of influenced the design of what we're building uh, to a large extent because, uh, because we believe very much in the sort of GitHub uh, pull request style of collaboration that the data scientists are familiar with. And, um, uh, and there are some challenges in, in making that possible for, uh, for ML. Um, and then finally, the model development process has to be continuous. And so there are a couple of things that I mean by this. Uh, the first one is that the uh, development process um, must be automatic. The deployment process, sorry, must be automatic. So it must be possible to automatically deploy um, a model uh, into a staging environment or production environment without manually emailing uh, Jupyter notebooks or, uh, uh, or TensorFlow files, um, uh, sort of serialized TensorFlow models around. Um, uh, because as soon as you start doing things manually, then it, it introduces this uh, possibility for, for human error. Um, and the other piece is that you have to be able to statistically monitor your models. And this is interesting because uh, monitoring models um, is specifically is quite different to uh, monitoring regular software that you might deploy as microservices. And the reason for that is that um, when you monitor um, software, you can monitor things like latencies and error rates. But when you monitor um, micro, uh, sorry, when you monitor models, machine learning models, they can be giving you perfectly normal latencies and perfectly normal error rates. Um, and the model can have gone completely haywire. Um, and the reason for that is basically, if you already knew the right answer for um, what the model was predicting, then you wouldn't need the model. In other words, the production data is unlabeled. And so um, this means that uh, it's challenging to understand the behavior of your model once it's running in production. So an example might be, um, that uh, I might have deployed a model uh, for, um, for autonomous uh, vehicles that classify road signs. And so you might have um, a bunch of uh, cars driving around with models running on hardware in the cars and sensors, cameras basically, um, on the cars that are looking around for the road signs. And 
if you already knew what road sign the sensor was looking at, um, then you wouldn't need the model, right? But at the same time, it means that it's hard to understand the behavior of the model in production. And there are some solutions to this, including uh, looking at the statistical distribution of the classifications that the model is making, if it's a classifier. Um, and then you can say, well, if the actual distribution of classifications drifts very significantly from my expected distribution, like the distribution that I uh, used in training, um, in the training set, then maybe page a human, like fire an alert and get a human to look at what's going on. Because either you deployed a bad model, in which case, um, well, uh, you need to know about it so that, so that you can roll back and so that you can figure out what went wrong with the new deployed model. Um, uh, or the world changed. And um, especially with things like computer vision, uh, it's, uh, it's often surprising like how the models actually distinguish features um, in the data. And, um, uh, and you can get stupid things like um, the, the computer vision model might never have classified any or never, never be trained on any uh, stop signs in the snow. And for some reason, it can't classify stop signs in the snow. So suddenly it snows over a large part of the country and then your um, stop sign classifier stops working. And obviously you're in trouble. So you need to, to have that statistical monitoring. Um, so those are the requirements. And, and so uh, I'm gonna talk about how, how we can try and address those requirements um, using MLOps tools. And, um, and just before I do that, I wanna talk a little bit about um, how the, the, the software uh, life cycle, sorry, the ML, the ML ops life cycle is just fundamentally more complicated than the software development life cycle. So when you're doing software development and uh, life is easy, <laughs> kind of, um, uh, it's easier anyway, because uh, all you need to do is you need to think about versioning specific versions of your code, because um, as long as you're dockerizing things, um, then uh, you ought to only need to know exactly which version of the code was used plus the docker file and the dependencies um, in order to uh, reproducibly build the same or effectively the same um, uh, deployable artifact and so you can build you can uh, uh, create code you can test that code in ci you can deploy that code into production and then your monitoring system can tell you how well it's performing maybe you need to upgrade a database maybe you need to um, uh, go and optimize a certain code path and uh, you can go around this loop as quickly as you can and that's basically what we're doing with devops but with machine learning and ml ops um, you've got this fundamentally more complicated uh, thing going on which is that you've got data coming into the system which is uh, a major form of entropy and um, you've got code that's uh, that's being written to train the models and you've got parameters which are being fed in uh, to the uh, to training the models, the model runs, the training model run, the model training runs, sorry. Um, and all of these things combine, um, uh, and before you even train a model, you've also got data runs, which is when you're doing feature engineering or um, you're uh, filtering or uh, splitting the data. And so you're executing a certain version of a piece of code against a certain input data set and creating an intermediate data set. Um, that's what a data run is. Or you're, um, uh, you're running a certain version of a piece of code um, against uh, uh, an input data set like a test training and validation set um, and then you're creating a model as an output 
And so when you're doing ML, when you're developing machine learning models, you are doing these data runs and these model runs, whether you're keeping track of them or not. These might be the cells that you run in your Jupyter notebook or the Python scripts that you run on your laptop. Um, and these runs are happening. Um, you just haven't given a name to them. And so what we've realized is that it's really important to introduce this notion of run as a kind of a, a building block. It's a fundamental object in the system when you're doing MLOps. It's this version of this piece of code ran in this environment uh, with this input data and these parameters and it created this output. And one of those types of outputs, like I said, is models. And then the model itself, the serialized model file, is the deployable artifact. It has some metrics associated with it, like how well it performed against the validation set. And then it's that model that you're deploying into production. Um, and then you're monitoring uh, in the way that I described that monitoring uh, models is different to monitoring microservices. Um, and then your monitoring might actually cause you to go back around all sorts of different loops through this diagram. Um, so that's kind of the, um, the flow that we're looking at here. Um, so I'm a little short on time, so I'm gonna skip over uh, the life cycle quickly. Um, the life cycle is really just a visual representation of how um, the diagram I just showed you is cyclic. Um, and so you do data engineering, you need to keep track of the data runs uh, when you're doing things like feature engineering. And then you train a model, which means you take a certain version of the data and you you train the model and out of the model uh, development process come serialized models, uh, typically Docker images uh, with serialized models baked into them. And then those serialized models uh, get run in production or staging and then production. Um, and then there are these kind of two feedback loops. There's the statistical monitoring feedback loop, which is the fast one where you can say, show me the behavior of my model in production in real time based on like the distribution of classifications it's making. And then there's also this slow feedback loop, which is that you retrain the models with new data as you get new data coming in. And of course, the model making decisions can change the world. And so it can also in, impact on the data that uh, is being recorded in the database. Um, so, so that's kind of the, the MLOps lifecycle. And, and hopefully I've adequately answered the first part of the talk title now, which is what is MLOps? Um, my opinion is that MLOps is not just about operating models, it's actually about the entire life cycle of uh, doing data engineering, training models, and then getting models into production. Um, and it's about uh, being able to implement this process in, in your company or in your organization uh, with the same level of rigor that, that uh, sort of best-in-class uh, DevOps and software engineering teams um, uh, manage. And so, Let's kind of take a step back then and say, well, how can, how can properly implemented MLOps help me um, in, in the current global situation that we have where we're now all suddenly working from home? Uh, and in brackets, if I'm a data scientist or, or a manager of data scientists. Um, well, the answer to that question comes down to the collaboration piece that I mentioned earlier. So let's kind of do a deep dive on collaboration. Um, so there are, two way, there are two fundamental modes of collaborating between different people uh, doing, doing work. Um, there's synchronous and there's asynchronous. And synchronous collaboration is when people are sitting in a room together and they're interrupting each other when they have a question uh, and when they need to get something done. Um, and in particular with machine learning, it might even be that they're sharing an environment. 
So they might even be pair programming, um, sharing a text editor. So they take it in turns to use the keyboard. Um, they uh, would be working on exactly the same data set in exactly the same environment. Um, and then you're kind of time slicing it. Well, hopefully uh, pair programming is, uh, is effective and okay, so people can't make changes to this thing at the same time, but we just kind of take it in turns. Um, or there's an asynchronous approach, which is to say that uh, different people should be able to uh, do um, uh, work on different copies of things. And um, the problem with an asynchronous approach, of course, is that you then need to be able to cope with conflicts, like merge conflicts uh, in, in Git. Um, which takes me on to the second point here, which is how, how do software and DevOps teams do it? Um, well, with GitHub, basically, and tools that are like GitHub, like GitLab um, uh, and Bitbucket and, uh, and all of the tooling around that. Um, and the, the way that that works, as I'm sure most of the people in the audience know here, is um, that you can fork someone else's uh, uh, project effectively, or, um, if you're, or, or you can make a branch from master you can make some changes in your branch. And while you're making the changes in your branch, you're not treading on anyone else's toes. And when you then propose those changes back to the master branch, that's when you can uh, pull in new changes from the master branch and integrate them into your branch. And uh, that's when you have to deal with merge conflicts. And then you can propose a version uh, of the change which is up to date with respect to the master branch. That's basically commonly known as Git flow. Um, and it's been very successfully used in pretty much every team on the planet. Um, uh, people have tweaks to that approach uh, with multiple master branches and so on, but it's all fundamentally the same idea of asynchronous collaboration. And then with DevOps teams adopting things like GitOps, where uh, your source of truth for what's running in production is also in a Git repo, well, you can use tools like Terraform uh, or you can version control your Kubernetes uh, YAMLs, um, and then happy days. You can use the same collaboration approach of pull requests uh, when, uh, when you're deciding um, to uh, scale up the cluster or deploy a new database and doing the other things that DevOps teams do. Um, so, so how can you, so what are the challenges applying asynchronous collaboration to machine learning? Uh, well, they are numerous. Um, the first problem is that uh, is that Jupyter notebooks um, don't version control very well, and a lot of data scientists use Jupyter notebooks. Um, another challenge is uh, that data versioning and data sharing is is difficult in um, uh, in a machine learning context. Sorry, in in a collaboration context because. Uh, you can't very easily put your data in Git. Um, there is a, a project called Git LFS, but it has some significant restrictions. Um, and, uh, and so what we find is that teams normally just don't bother with data versioning and uh, they just rename files or rename folders and have folder names with like underscore final and underscore final final v2 um, and all these funny little strings that refer to the things that have been done. And then they have to share those folders around and it becomes quite messy. Um, the other thing is metric and parameter tracking. Uh, you didn't have to do that when you're doing software, but you do have to do it with machine learning. You have to keep track of which parameters you used and which 
um, accuracy score you got uh, because models aren't either sort of green or red. They're not either working or broken. They're kind of somewhere in the middle and the, the metrics like the accuracy score will tell you uh, how, how good a model is against a certain test set. Um, and so you need to keep track of that and you could put that in the, in the git commit message. Um, but then you have to have a human remembering to do it. And people are bad at remembering to do things. Uh, or you can use tools that, that, that help you with experiment tracking. Um, and uh, there are challenges with, uh, with using a combination of local uh, development environments. So you might have a GPU um, or an IPU in uh, the machine uh, in, uh, at your desk, um, or you might um, be using machines in the cloud. And uh, with Git, it's quite easy to switch from a local machine to a machine in the cloud or a machine in your data center. Uh, but um, doing it effectively in, with machine learning, where you've also got uh, data that you need to move around and you've got uh, to keep track of metrics and parameters, and maybe you can't even really use Git with your Jupyter notebooks and still do effective collaboration, it makes it all a lot more challenging with respect to kind of moving around where you're, where you're doing the work. Um, and so there are some tools that, um, that help to solve these problems for machine learning. And it's actually a very exciting space and there's lots of new innovation happening around this. Um, and so obviously I'm from dot science. I'd love it if you uh, started using dot science, but I also wanted to give a acknowledgement to the fact that there are lots of other tools out there. And so MLflow is quite strong in the experiment, track, experiment tracking space. Uh, weights and biases is very strong in like comparing the relationships between uh, metrics and hyperparameters. DVC is a promising project um, in terms of doing data version control, uh, as is a project called Pachyderm. And then in terms of diffing and merging Jupyter notebooks, there's an open source project called NBDime. Um, in fact, many of these many of these projects are open source. Um, and um, and so what we've tried to do with dot science is bring the capabilities from um, uh, these kinds of capabilities into a single tool. Um, 